one really quick note of housekeeping. Uh, Lord willing, we will be in numbers this evening, and then we will finish the book next week. And so that'll be the 21st. The following week, the 28th, as has been our practice between the books of the Bible, we will take a week just uh, to kind of reflect on the book as a whole uh, and spend the evening in an extended time of worship and prayer. So I hope you can join us for that. That'll be the 28th of January, and then we will begin Deuteronomy uh, the first Sunday in February. But as for tonight, we'll go ahead and pick up in Numbers chapter 30. Once again, we can find um, the organizational structure of the book of Numbers a little bit jarring. Here we have an explanation, um, some legislation concerning personal vows. And at first glance, it's hard to know why it's here as opposed to somewhere else. Um, But the most likely reason is because we're in a position of numbers that is effectively preparing for battle. First, in the big picture of Israel entering into the promised land, uh, this final transition we just saw as the second, second census was taken and the army of Israel was numbered. But before that, there will be this promised battle with Midian, which we will see later tonight. And so here we come first to a chapter on vows because oftentimes vows are taken in a time of need. If you look throughout the Bible at the recorded vows we have, generally they follow a Lord, if you do this, then I will pattern. And so it makes sense to find some legislation on vows here because a large portion of Israel is going to go to the battlefield. Okay? And so the safety of these soldiers is going to be not only on their own minds, but also on the minds of their families. And so it makes sense that we're given legislation here on vows. And so we read in chapter 30, verse 1, Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes of the people of Israel, saying, This is what the Lord has commanded. If a man vows a vow to the Lord, or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. And so it refers here both to the vowing of a vow as well as the swearing of an oath, okay? As far as we can tell, the distinction between those two things is, as I mentioned, a vow is prompted by a need. It has an if-then relationship to it. For example, we've already seen one of these in the book of Genesis. Jacob speaking to God before he goes to the land of his ancestors to find himself a wife says, God, if you go before me and protect me, then when I return to this place, I will set up an altar. That's a vow in format. An oath is just a promise. Sometimes oaths have, um, have attachments to them, and so they swear by something or um, one One way we see it parsed occasionally in scripture is, as I live, that's the beginning of an oath. But either way, whether it's a vow or an oath, it says that a man shall not break his word. We've talked about, because we've encountered vows before, but it's worth reviewing again, um, 
thinking of the word vow as an acronym to understand what it is because we're not really a vow-making culture. We make promises, but we handle promises very differently than vows. Okay? The only vows we really have left in modern culture are the ones that may involve, uh, be involved in your marriage at your wedding. But I always think it's helpful to review what a vow is, and so it's a couple of things. First, V, it's voluntary. Okay? A vow is not the same thing as a command. It's not a requirement that God places on anyone. Uh, Israel was not required to make at least three vows a year or their membership as an Israelite would be canceled. It was something that they chose willingly to do. It was voluntary. But as we see here, oh, once it was made, it was obligatory. It was to be uh, kept no matter what. It was an obligation. In fact, the Bible makes many warnings against uh, rash vows. You could, for example, look at the story of Jephthah. Jephthah, who's one of the judges of Israel, and rashly, before going into battle, says, God, before, uh, if you go before me in battle and you protect me, the first thing that comes out of my tent when I come home, I will give to you. And the first thing out of his tent is his daughter. Now, We'll deal with that when we get to the book of Judges, but for now, just in case that bothers you, do not forget the context of that story. Judges is not a moral high ground part of Israel's history. It is full of embarrassingly unfaithful and unrighteous behavior of Israel, but nonetheless, the story is there to serve as a reminder of the danger of a rash vow. The book of Ecclesiastes reminds us of the same thing. And so the author of Ecclesiastes says it this way. He says, you are God in heaven and we are here on earth so our words should be few. And he goes on and he says, it is better to never vow at all to make, than to make a vow and not keep it. Okay? And so there's no advantage, no uh, no mark of righteousness or holiness or proof of devotion in not keeping our word. There's no value in making a promise if we don't intend to keep it. God takes a vow very seriously. And so we have that reminder here given primarily because now it's going to deal with the questions. Something we've seen consistently in Israel's uh, history throughout Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers is that law is given, and we've already looked at law for vows, how vows are made, uh, how they're fulfilled, how they're to be handled, uh, and then something comes up and somebody goes, well, what about this particular circumstance? And apparently the circumstances that this passage addresses leads us to believe that it had to do with the relationship between Father and daughter, the relationship between husband and wife, and those vows, okay? Now, once again, that these vows would suddenly be on the table makes sense because these are uh, going to be their fathers and their husbands potentially going to war. And the first thing to notice in verse 3 is, if a woman vows a vow to the Lord, Okay. Now, that might not seem significant to us, but it's worth pointing out here that as we see consistently in Israel's relationship with God, there is room for the personal, devotional relationship of God to be something available to women. Religion wasn't something that was to the exclusion of women, that was only the domain of men. Uh, here, a woman 
uh, as she also, as we've seen, brings her own sacrifices and can come and worship at the tabernacle, here she can vow a vow to the Lord. The question here has to do with how does that vow relate to her relationship? First we'll see to her father and then to her husband. And so we continue in verse 3. If she vows a vow to the Lord and binds herself by a pledge while within her father's house in her youth. And her father hears of her vow and of her pledge by which she has bound herself and says nothing to her, then all her vows shall stand and every pledge which she has bound herself shall stand. So the first circumstance here has to do with a woman while she's living at home, quote, in her youth, okay? In fact, the rabbis in later application of this law believed that that in her youth applied only to the woman up to the point of puberty, okay? Now, I think it's a little bit harder to argue that you can draw that from the text. The way that this phrase for youth is used uh, is more general than that. What I would argue the addition, not just a woman in her father's house, but the addition of in her youth is recognizing the fact that a woman may actually go out, marry a man, become a widow, and move back in with her father. That is not what's on the table here, as we'll see in just a little bit. A woman may go through a divorce and move back in with her father. That is not what this is addressing. It's addressing a woman who is living with her father during the period of her youth. Okay? And notice where it starts. It starts not with the critique of if the father stands against the vow, here's what happens. It's specifically, read again with me in verse 4. If the father hears of her vow and her pledge by which she's bound herself and says nothing to her, then all her vow shall stand, and every pledge by which she has bound herself shall stand. In other words, if the father says nothing, then the vow stays put. In contrast to that, verse 5, but if her father opposes her, on the day that she hears of it, no vow of hers, no pledge by which she has bound herself shall stand, and the Lord will forgive her because her father opposed her. Now it's easy for us to get our cackles up as moderns and go, wait a minute, why does the father get the opportunity to overrule his daughter's vow? Now, we'll notice this as we move along, what it clearly can't be about, okay? Oftentimes, the Bible is criticized for having a low view of women and focusing in on somehow seeing women as not as smart or not as capable as men. We'll read the rest of the chapter. You can pull out a magnifying glass if you'd like. You will not find any such expression in this book. Okay. The legislation here has not to do with if a woman is smart enough to make a good vow. It's a woman in relationship to her father and then in relationship to her husband. It's that relational aspect that is emphasized. And all we get here, we'll talk about it more, more in a little bit, is if the father doesn't say anything, the vow stands, but he does have the opportunity to interfere. And most importantly... Because here's another place where our modern minds shift. What is the emphasis of the author? That if a father does so, the woman will be forgiven her vow. Okay? If her father doesn't allow her to keep it, effectively, God won't hold that against her. 
That's what the passage is saying. She will be forgiven the fulfillment of her vow, or in this case, the lack of fulfillment. Okay. Now it continues and it moves on to another aspect here in verse 6. If she marries a husband while under her vows or any thoughtless utterance of her lips by which she has bound herself, and her husband hears of it and says nothing to her on the day that he hears, then her vow shall stand. So notice the circumstance here. The circumstance is before she married, she made a vow. Now that she's taken a husband, if the husband hears about the vow and does nothing, the vow stays put. Remember with me right now that most time, vows have a delayed fulfillment. So this is a total hypothetical, but what if a woman, even before she was married, said, God, if you will give me a child, then I will, okay? The scenario here is that she explains whatever it is that she's offered. Maybe it's financial, maybe it's like Hannah in the book of Samuel. If you give me a child, then I will give him to your service, Remember, Samuel is raised in the service of the tabernacle and not at home with his family. If she's made such a vow and then she takes a husband and the husband hears about it, if he doesn't do anything about it, then the vow stands. But we see here in verse 8, but if on the day her husband comes to hear of it, he opposes her, then he makes void her vow that was on her and the thoughtless utterance of her lips by which she bound herself and the Lord will forgive her. Okay. And so we see the same distinction made here. And once again, it requires that the husband takes action and stands against the vow when he hears about it. That'll be important for what comes next. But, I, but it's important that we notice verse 9. But any vow of a widow or of a divorced woman, anything by which she has bound herself, shall stand against her. Okay. So notice this. A woman who is on her own, either because of divorce or because her husband has died, her vows aren't subject to anyone. They can't be interfered with by anyone, including herself. She must keep her vows. Okay? And so the significance here is not found in the nature of woman, but in the nature of relationships as the Bible envisions it. Now, that being said, it is hard to remove the clear emphasis the Bible makes in the Old Testament and in the New that there is an order to these relationships, not one that is based on ability, but one that is based on roles as they were designed by God. And so clearly, we can't really get away from this. It sees the husband having a significant amount of authority in relationship to his wife and the father having a significant amount of authority in relationship to his daughter. This is not that a woman is subject to all men or that would apply to the divorced woman or the widow. But there is a relationship or a correlation between these two relationships of a father and a child and a husband and their wife that involves these things. It is worth pointing out, I don't actually think this makes better sense of the passage, but it might help you understand. Keep in mind, in these days, that the division of labor was such that the income was going to be primarily through the father or through the husband, okay? And so if a daughter is making a vow, what is she vowing? If she says, Lord, I will give you this amount of money. Where did that money come from? Okay. It's the same thing with a husband. 
And so that may add to it. I don't actually think it does in a significant way. I think the way the Bible speaks of relationship speaks for itself. Now, another thing I want to point out here is that the passage does not allow the husband to be arbitrary. In fact, as much as you might argue that this is a limitation on the vows of, men, of women, it's much more clearly a limitation on the authority of men, okay, as we'll see in just a second. But we do have one passage that I think that makes a significant point on these things. One place where we see this play out directly that seems to nail down what I've suggested to you, so I'd like to turn there. I've already mentioned to you the vow of Hannah. But let's go ahead and look at it together because we'll notice something very significant about that vow. Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 1. Now, Lord willing, eventually... We'll return to 1 Samuel ourselves, so I'm not going to do much more than set up just the most basic of context. Outside of the fact that Hannah is a woman who desires a child and does not have one, in the big picture, God is actually using these circumstances to raise up a prophet so that he can anoint a king, in fact, two kings, first Saul and then David. But it starts, as a lot of God's plans do, with a barren woman who's praying. So we see this with Abraham and Sarah, we see this uh, with Rachel, we see this with Rebecca, and now we see it with uh, Hannah, Samuel's mother. And so notice um, verse 11 of chapter 1, she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me, and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. Not only does she quote vow a vow here, but she dedicates this son to be a Nazarite, to take a lifelong from birth Nazarite vow, okay? And if you keep reading the story, that's exactly what God does. He hears her prayer, he opens her womb, he gives her a son. But I want you to notice verse 21. The man Elkanah, now that's Hannah's husband, and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. Do you see that? What vow? The vow that Hannah made. Okay. And so what we see here is that Elkanah hears Hannah's vow, agrees to it, and it now becomes his vow. Because what is their relationship? It's a relationship of oneness. It's a relationship of unity. Okay. So going back, like I said, in this passage in Numbers, it does set limitations on the validity of a woman's vow in relationship to her father or to her husband. However, it also sets limits on the authority of the man in relationship to his daughter or his wife's vow. Notice what it says in verse 10. And if she vowed in her husband's house or bound herself by a pledge with an oath and her husband heard of it and said nothing to her and did not oppose her, then all her vows shall stand and every pledge by which she bound herself shall stand. 
Okay, and so here we get the last situation. The first one was a daughter still living at home. The second one was a woman who before she was married made a vow and then gets married. And the final one is a woman who takes a vow in relationship with her husband. And we see the same pattern. But notice verse 12. But if her husband makes them null and void on the day that he hears them, then whatever proceeds out of her lips concerning her vows or concerning her pledge of herself shall not stand. Her husband has made them void and the Lord will forgive her. Verse 13, any vow and any binding oath to afflict herself, her husband may establish or her husband may make void. But if her husband says nothing to her from day to day, then he establishes all her vows or pledges that are upon her. He has established them because he said nothing to her on the day that he heard them. Okay, so what's it saying here? That if he hears about them and does nothing, they stand When it comes fulfillment day and he comes before her and says, God has kept his side of the bargain. I need to fulfill my vow. He can't go, no, no, I've changed my mind. Okay. He has an opportunity to annul her vow, but silence in this sense is consent. If from day to day he says nothing, then the vow stands. Uh, verse 15, but if he makes them null and void after he's heard of them, then he shall bear her iniquity. Now, also, there's something there that I just want to point to. He shall bear her iniquity. Here's something that we'll see, especially in the book of Deuteronomy, that I find fascinating. The Bible does legislate the relationship between a husband and wife, and it handles these in particular ways, but if you read carefully, generally, God doesn't see, for example, divorce as the privilege of men over women, but a sin that men make against women. And it seems here there's even that same possibility that God makes an allowance for this, that he's aware of it, but we need to recognize that in doing so, this behavior is behavior that will be held accountable. At the bare minimum, He shall bear his wife's iniquity. That's what this means. It means if he's going to make the decision, if he's making that decision from wrong motive because he's selfish and doesn't want to give up his cow, because he's arbitrary and just wants to control his wife. You see, the Bible doesn't envision the authority of anyone on earth as being ultimate or unaccountable. And it's always the case in any order of relationship, wherever there is hierarchy, wherever there is authority, that there is a propensity of those who have power to abuse it, and that there's a propensity of those who are under power to resist it or to rebel against it. That's the nature of all of these relationships, but it's worth keeping in mind that the legislation the Bible uses on the husband always keeps this Uh, accountability in view. I can't resist, so I'm just going to point to it. We won't turn there, but in Deuteronomy chapter 24, we get the passage that deals with divorce. And oftentimes, we think that what the Old Testament law says about a divorce is if a man finds anything unclean in his wife, he shall divorce his husband. That's not actually the command. Like many commands in the Old Testament, the command in Deuteronomy 24 is casuistic which means that it's based on a particular circumstance, okay? In other words, it begins with an if. Here's how that statement reads. If 
a man finds any uncleanness in his wife, and if he presents her with a certificate of divorce, and if he puts her away, and if she remarries, and then if that man finds uncleanness in her and then puts her away, and then if the first husband wants her back, he will not take her back. It is an abomination. The commandment in that passage is that it is not okay for a husband to retake a wife he's divorced who remarried in between. Okay? That's where the command is. Okay? So there's more than meets the eye here, but we really do have to wait because we have to deal with numbers tonight. But even if you read Malachi, when, in that passage in Malachi chapter 2 when he says God hates divorce, ask yourself, Does God see divorce as a privilege of men or does he see it as a sin of men against women? One that he's legislating, one that he's responding to, but nonetheless, one that they will bear the responsibility for. And I would say the answer is clearly yes. Now, there is one other thing I want to point out here. What is God doing here? He's basically setting a precedent that personal familial relationships, whether it's parent and child or husband and wife, significantly cannot be removed on the verbiage of devotion. Jesus says the same thing. You see, in Jesus' day, there had become a habit of people dedicating a large portion of their income, their wealth, to God. The problem is the portion of income that they selected was the income they should have used to take care of their parents in their old age. And so they would come to their parents and say, instead of taking care of you, everything I would have used to, make, to take care of you in your old age is Corbin, a gift to God. And Jesus says, why do you follow the traditions of men and deny the commandments of God that clearly says to honor your father and mother. He says that we cannot lay aside our familial relationships in an act of devotion. It's incongruent. Here we see the same thing in the book of Numbers. Then we get a a summary statement in verse 16. These are the statutes that the Lord commanded Moses about a man and his wife and about a father and his daughter while she's in her youth within her father's house. And so finally, just to reiterate reiterate it, the emphasis here is a relationship one, not an ability one, not a rationality one, a relationship one. Now, as we move into chapter 31, verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, avenge the people of Israel on the Midianites. Afterwards, you shall be gathered to your people. This is the second time God has spoken to Moses and followed it with a, afterwards, you shall be gathered to your people, which is just a Jewish idiom that means you're going to die. Okay? The first one was appoint a leader, a successor, to lead the people in your place. After that, you're going to die. And so last week we saw as as Moses appoints Joshua, who will take over as leader of the people of Israel. Here we see it again. But when we get to chapter 32, after this battle, Moses will still be around. Okay? Before he actually gets to this death, we have the entire book of Deuteronomy, except for the last chapter, where Moses gives one final speech to the people of Israel before they enter the land and before he's gathered to his people. 
okay? And so the meaning, the emphasis on this sentence is not chronological. It's not about the next thing on the timeline. It's another thing that needs to happen before Moses dies, okay? Effectively, God is helping him get his house in order. And what we're told here is that this battle is going to be one of avenging Israel on the Midianites. Now, we've already been told that this was coming. This has to do with what happened in a place called Baal Peor. Okay. You see, back in Numbers chapter 26, uh, 24 through 26, this uh, foreign prophet called Balaam is called upon by the king of Midian to curse Israel. And because the God of the universe is the God of Israel, he finds himself unable to do so. And although he's brought around to different perspectives to look on the people of Israel, to speak over the people of Israel, nothing comes out of his mouth but blessings. But he has a backup plan because he still wants to get paid. And so he comes to the king of Midian and he basically says, look, I can't do anything verbally to destroy Israel, but they can destroy themselves. Here's what I recommend you do. Take your hottest women, make sure they're scantily clad, and send them to the edges of Israel's, Israel's camp and have them invite them into your worship. Now, the worship of Baal and the worship of Ashtoreth, the, key, the uh, gods and goddesses of, uh, of the Midianites, was sexual in nature. And so these temple prostitutes, if you will, invite Israel not only into adulterous sexual relationships, but also idolatrous worship of another god. And because of that, thousands of Israelites die in God's judgment. And the Bible calls that the stumbling block of Balaam. Okay? He trips them up with this, and it's got consequences. And so God tells them, there will be consequences for that. There will be judgment on, Midian, on the Midianites because they have done this to you. Now it is time for that. Now it's worthwhile for us to pause right here because if we were going to talk about Israel's holy war, that really doesn't take place until the book of Joshua. But in some sense, it begins here. And it can be problematic. We can read it and go, what is going on here? It is difficult to label what happens in the land of Canaan by the command of God anything else than genocide. And so we look at this and we go, how is this compatible with a gracious and compassionate God? And so before we look at this battle, it's worth dealing with that up front and putting it in perspective. And let's just recognize tonight how important the question is. Okay? Because there have been terrible genocidal atrocities throughout history. Whether it's Rwanda uh, or, or these other places and times, you know, the Hutus and the Tutsis of, of large, significant point, and we rightly understand the wrongness of that. And we have to be careful of just going, well, God commanded it, therefore it was okay, okay? That can ring hollow because God's commands tell us something about who God is. So how do we deal with this? How do we read these things in the Old Testament and reconcile it with God of compassion and love? Uh, the first thing we should notice is actually right here in the beginning of the passage. Look at verse three. 
So Moses spoke to the people, saying, Arm men from among you for war, that they may go against Midian to execute the Lord's vengeance on Midian. That is tremendously significant. Okay? In fact, as a side note, when it says avenge there in verse, chapter, uh, in verse 2, that's the only place in the Old Testament that we translated it avenge. And it's only because of its context. Okay? This passage here doesn't lay this out as the vengeance of Israel, but the vengeance of God. In fact, just a little bit after this, in just a short amount of time, in the book of Deuteronomy, God makes this statement in Deuteronomy 32:35. He says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. And so the first thing we have to understand when we read this is that it presents consistently Old Testament and New, that God is the only judge, the only one who can rightly and properly take life because he's the only giver of life. Consider Genesis chapter 9. If any man takes the life of another man, his blood will be required of him because man was made in God's image. Okay? And so that's a significant point to understand here is that this portrays God as judge, and that makes these circumstances relatively different. Now, another thing I want to remind you is that the Canaanites, including the Midianites, are not the only ones under God's judgment. We can't forget, as we read about the Midianites here, that 20,000 Israelites have already died because of this same event, okay? In fact, Notice what it says in Ezekiel chapter 25. Look with me here at verse 14. Now this is dealing with the nation of Edom. Edom that descends from Esau was a perpetual enemy of Israel. And at this point in Israel's history, they watched the destruction of Israel at the hand of Babylon, and they basically set up bleachers, sell popcorn, applaud, and point out to the raiders where they might have missed some really good stuff. Okay? That's what's going on. And so this is a prophecy that Ezekiel gives against Edom. Notice verse 12. Thus says the Lord God, because Edom acted revengefully against the house of Judah and is grievously offended in taking vengeance on them. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will stretch out my hand against Edom and cut off from it man and beast, and I will make it desolate from Taman even to Dadan, and they shall fall by the sword. Now listen to verse 14. And I will lay my vengeance upon Edom by the hand of my people Israel. And they shall do in Edom according to my anger and according to my wrath. And they shall know my vengeance, declares the Lord God. So do you see the distinction that's made there? It's going to be God's judgment by the hand of Israel. Now, what's important to keep in mind Like, let's just take the context of Ezekiel. What did I say was happening? The Edomites are applauding the judgment or the destruction of Israel by the Babylonians. But why is Babylon raiding Israel at all? What does Isaiah tell us? What does Jeremiah tell us? It tells us that they are God's tool to bring judgment on Israel. 
In fact, that's what makes Habakkuk not able to sleep in the book of Habakkuk. The book of Habakkuk begins this way. Habakkuk is a prophet, and he's praying to God, and he says, God, how can you allow Israel to continue in its filthy and wicked ways and not bring justice? And God says, I'd tell you, but you're not going to believe me. And Habakkuk says, try me. This is my paraphrase. Okay. Habakkuk says, try me. And so God says, right now, I'm bringing the Babylonians, and they will bring my judgment on Israel. And Habakkuk blows a gasket. He goes, the Babylonians? I mean, clearly, we're terrible. But the Babylonians? How can you justly use them to judge the people of Israel? And God goes on to explain that he's totally capable of making Babylon a tool of judgment and then judging them justly. Okay? And so being a tool of God's judgment doesn't remove you from doing justice. In fact, he greatly, in the book of Ezekiel, criticizes the Babylonians for their harsh treatment of Israel. Here's the point, okay? God is going to use Israel to bring about his judgment, not because they're Israel, but because God uses real things to do real things. He is fully capable of using a human army to accomplish his will. Now, where we get hung up, and this is really important, is thinking that today, in present tense, for our own nation, for our own wars, we can make the same discernment and label ourselves a judge of God's wrath and mete it out as we see fit. Okay. And so that brings us to the second thing that we should point out. We see that God is just and he will use Israel to judge other nations. He will use other nations to judge Israel. But second, Israel's holy war is unique. Is unique. The story the Bible tells, God makes a promise to Abraham to give him a land. And that land is the place where he plants Israel but why? Why does he do that? Where is he going? He's creating a nation so that he can send that nation a Messiah. Okay? It's an old phrase, one that we don't use a lot, but we need to recognize that there are different dispensations in the story the Bible tells, that there's different economies of how God operates with man. Okay? And so, for example... We don't have to spend a lot of time preaching on don't eat of the tree which I've commanded you not to eat, right? Why? It was commanded of Adam. It was commanded of Eve. Why not us? Different dispensation. For example, none of you recently have slaughtered a sheep to worship the God of Israel. Why? Because something has changed in the timeline. This is something that's really important when we read the Old Testament because sometimes we read the Old Testament and it says things that we no longer do as Christians and we go, hey, wait a minute. How can we say the whole Bible is God's word when it tells us to do this over here and it tells us not to do it later? And I always think to myself, why don't we ever stop at a crosswalk and go, hey, wait a minute, that sign just told me don't walk and now it's saying walk. Can it really be trusted? Right? It's a different time. The season changes. And I'm not just saying this is the old way it was done. This is the new way. God intentionally is doing something here. 
And so he does it in a particular way. But when we get to the New Testament, when we get to our own life, Jesus makes clear that this aspect is over and not for the church. Let me just point out to you that Israel is a nation. The church is not. And so, for example, Jesus stops his own disciples, armed with swords, from fighting back because he says, no, that's not the way of the kingdom of God. He who lives by a sword will die by a sword. Put your swords away. In fact, in Romans chapter 12, Paul says that we're not to take personal vengeance. And do you know what he bases it upon? Deuteronomy 32, 35. Do not take vengeance because God says vengeance is mine. Okay. And so where we are at is a different dispensation and we cannot justify our own wars as if they're anything like the war of Israel. And you go, but, but I feel like God is telling me to or a nation claims divine fiat. I mean, our own nation has done that, have we not? Manifest destiny was a biblical foundation for our taking of the land that makes up where we live right now because that's what God has for us because we're his people, America, right? This is different. And it's honestly not that hard to see the difference. For me, it's comparative to a woman who says, what's the difference between God calling, his, uh, calling Abraham to sacrifice Isaac and the voice I keep hearing me that says I should kill my kids? And we should care about that question. It's obviously a super important question. You know what the difference is? The difference is 25 years of repeated miraculous interference in Abraham's life. What's the difference here? The entire exodus is the difference here. When Israel was still grumbling and going, God will never deliver us, God was ransacking the armies of Egypt on their behalf. He's spoken to them at Mount Sinai. He's constantly and regularly led them. No one can go, I'm not really sure we're hearing right. Okay? That's a significant difference. It's worth pointing out. Third, when we read this story, often we read it in isolation. So we start here in Numbers 31, or we start in the book of Joshua. But this story begins in Genesis with the promises made to Abraham. Remember, Abraham, his son Isaac, his son Jacob, they all lived in the land of Canaan that Israel's now headed to. The reason Israel is now headed to this land is because of promises made to Abraham. But there's something in those promises that is significant and very easy to miss. Turn to Genesis chapter 15. If you had to say, what are the most important chapters in Abraham's life? You would be hard-pressed between Genesis 15 and Genesis 17. This is where the covenant is really ratified and then given the symbol in chapter 17 of circumcision. It's the basis, the foundation of everything to come. What I want you to notice is in chapter 15, verse 16. In fact, for context... Let's dial back to verse 13. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. That's Egypt. 
Okay, verse 14. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. That's the Exodus. Verse 15. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried in a good age, and they shall come back here. That's Joshua. In the fourth generation, why? For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Why does God make a promise of the land to Abraham and say 400 years and some pretty significant suffering for Israel before I'm going to fulfill it? It says specifically here because, quote, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. In other words, God is patient and long-suffering. He's not going to bring them in now because they're not yet ripe for judgment. Why does God wait 400 years? Because he's waiting for Canaan to repent. In fact, in a passage that I could not find, I'm pretty sure we'll hit it in Deuteronomy, but I could not find it today. And in all of my notes, I couldn't find it, but I know it's there. There is a passage of scripture that points out that even the 40 years wandering, what caused these 40 years, right? Israel comes up to the promised land, they're about to start this war, and it goes sideways for 40 years. Why? Because of Israel's unwillingness to trust God. But there is a passage, and I'm hoping we'll hit it in Deuteronomy, where it says that those 40 years were an act of mercy to the Canaanites. I know we all think that we're good multitaskers, Have you ever seen the studies? We're not. We can, at best, rapidly change between one task and another, and usually the quality of both tasks suffer. God is the only true multitasker. He is fully capable, fully capable of judging Israel and coinciding that with mercy to the Canaanites. He is fully capable of orchestrating both Babylon as a tool of judgment and bringing about the consequences that they deserve and not letting them get away with it, if you will. God's sovereignty is total and full and complete. And if you need evidence of that, you just look at the cross itself, where God takes the greatest act of rebellion his creation has ever taken out against it, putting to death his own son and uses that for salvation. And so we see here that God is long-suffering. He says, judgment's coming on Canaan, but not yet. You're familiar with the book of Jonah, right? Jonah, belly of a whale. He goes to what city? City of Nineveh, right? And what does Jonah want for Nineveh? Judgment, destruction. And significantly, the reason Jonah wants it is because Nineveh is the head of Assyria, And Assyria is the one that God has threatened to use to judge Israel. And so Jonah goes, you know what? If God just destroys them now, maybe we get off scot-free. And so he's, it's not that he's a racist, he's a nationalist, okay? But nonetheless, he wants destruction of Nineveh, and he effectively sets up a lawn chair to wait for it, and it doesn't come. And he's angry about it. Why doesn't it come? Because the entire city repents in sackcloth and ashes. But do you know that's not the end of the story of the book or uh, of the city of Nineveh? Jonah is one of 12 minor prophets. There's another minor prophet that deals specifically with Nineveh, the prophet Nahum. And Nahum is about a generation and a half later. 
And he brings, he speaks of the judgment of Nineveh that is inevitable. Okay. And eventually Nineveh is destroyed. In fact, it was never rebuilt after the destruction that Nahum speaks of. That's the end of Nineveh as we know it. You see, why is God long-suffering? Like I said earlier, with the land of Canaan, because he wants them to repent. In fact, what happens when a handful of Canaanites throughout the books we're about to read repent? Think of Rahab, right? She goes, I've heard what God's done in Israel. I believe he's the living and true God. And not only does she get grafted into the fate of Israel, she gets grafted into the genealogy of Jesus. There are other stories of mercy throughout there as well that we'll see along the way. But once again, I think Ezekiel is helpful here. Listen to the words of Ezekiel 18. I guess it doesn't need to be said. But Ezekiel 18 is worth studying at length. We're not going to do that. I want to just draw your attention to a particular part of it. Look at what it says in verse 21. But if a wicked person turns away from all his sins that he has committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is just and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. None of the transgressions that he's committed shall be remembered against him for the righteousness that he has done, he shall live. Listen, have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? That's the heart of God, and it's consistent with what we read from Genesis through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all the way into Joshua. He gives them opportunity to repent. And like with Rahab, all of the land sees the living and true God acting in Israel. Here's the stories of how Egypt was ransacked by the God of Israel and has a choice. Sometimes we try and make a distinction between the God of the Old Testament who's judgmental and vindictive and wrathful and the God of the New Testament who is compassionate and forgiving. That denies both the compassion and forgiveness that's emphasized in the Old Testament and also denies the justice and the judgment that's emphasized in the New. Listen to the words of Peter. Peter, the apostle of Jesus. Peter who knew something about mercy, right? Listen to what he says. Turn with me. Side note, my handwriting is really bad. Okay. Uh, turn with me to 2 Peter 3. Look at what he says in verse 3. Knowing first of all that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, and they will say, where is the promise of his coming? 
For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. What is he looking at here? He's looking at those who go, hey, didn't Jesus say that he'd be coming back? Didn't Jesus say that he'd return to set up his kingdom? It doesn't look likely. I mean, last year looked like the year before. You know, there's a continuity to things and an end of all things. That doesn't make any sense. And so he's speaking to Christians going, wait a minute. Why hasn't Jesus returned yet? In the old King James English, why does he tarry, right? Look at what he says in verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. Listen, Verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Why hasn't Jesus come? It's not because there is no judgment. It's because he's long-suffering, just like the God of Israel that we see in the Old Testament. In fact, notice what he says. Although God is patient, although he's long-suffering, verse 10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away and roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. He says when it does come, it will come quickly. And I know I've said it before, but it's worth reminding you that if there is no end to patience, it's not patience at all, it's indifference. God is long-suffering but he is just. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He's patient here because he desires all to repent and live. And it's consistent. And so as much as Canaan is a reminder of God's justice, it's also a tremendous reminder of God's patience. That brings us to the final point I want to make. I always think it's a good idea if we take the label Christian to follow in Jesus' footsteps, right? That's what it means to be a disciple, in fact. And so it's helpful, I think, to recognize that we're talking about a complex issue with a lot of facets and then ask the question, when Jesus deals with issues like this, what foot does he put forward? Where does he put the weight of the issue? In other words, how would Jesus read this passage we're about to read in chapter 31 dealing with the Uh, the holy war against Midian. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke 13. The very beginning of the chapter in verse one. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. In other words, he hears that some Jews have been slaughtered by Pilate. And not just slaughtered by Pilate, slaughtered by Pilate during a festival. That's what it means, mingled with the sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered? Sorry, page turn. Suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. You see, the Jews looked at this happening and they go, man, that was a significant act of judgment. They must have been terrible people. They're much like the pagans that are um, on the island of Malta. And Paul gets there 
and he's just walked onto land out of a shipwreck. And they think, oh man, what an escape. God is clearly involved. And then while Paul is there, he's gathering firewood, and he gets bit by a snake. And they think, oh, you escape from a shipwreck, and then God takes your life through a snake? Clearly, he's a terrible person. And Paul just shakes it off into the fire and survives this venomous bite. And then they're going, wait, is this guy a man or a god, right? It's the same misunderstanding. It's the same miscomprehension. Jesus says, judgment we all deserve. He says, don't think these are worse sinners. I tell you that we're all headed this way, right? We all have an appointment with God's justice. In fact, notice how he continues. Verse four, were those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who live in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And so we really shouldn't read this chapter about the destruction of Midian or the book of Joshua or Judges about the wars of Israel and not see it as a warning, a warning of our own sinfulness in the hands of a rightly angry God, about the reality of justice and a judgment it is to come. We should not read this chapter with a, some sort of violent smile on our face as if as if we're not subject to the same sins, as if we're not subject to the same consequences. So with that being said, now I think we can get into the chapter. Chapter 31, verse 4. You shall send a thousand from each of the tribes of Israel to the war. Okay, notice here, this isn't the entire army of Israel that was laid out in an earlier chapter, just a thousand from each, a total of 12 or maybe 13, depending on if Manasseh and Ephraim are handled together. So they were provided out of the thousand of Israel, a thousand from each tribe, 12,000 armed for war. That answers that question. And Moses sent them to war, a thousand from each tribe, together with Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, with the vessels of the sanctuary and the trumpets for alarm in his hand. And so at the head of the army is Phinehas. Now Phinehas is not the high priest, but the high priest's son. Right? His father, Eleazar, is the high priest. Why does Phineas go? Okay. Two reasons. One, the high priest is too important to be exposed to death. He's not to be on the front lines where people are dying. He's not to encounter a corpse because what he does in the temple would be interrupted. The worship of Israel would be interrupted. And so we've seen this consistently it used to be, while Aaron was there, there were certain things that Eleazar did instead, and now it's shifted to Phineas because Eleazar is the high priest. But there's a second reason. You may remember in the plague that happens in consequence of Baal Peor, it's Phineas who grabs the spear and through acting out God's vengeance against this particular person, ends the plague. So effectively, what he begins, God calls him to finish. The second thing I want you to notice is it says that he goes out both with the trumpets and then it says specifically uh, with the vessels of the sanctuary. Okay. Now, we're not told exactly what that is, but I'll give you a suggestion of what it probably entails. We'll know from later accounts that it was regular for God or for Israel to take the ark to the battlegrounds as a representation of the fact that God was with them and would fight for them. And then second, and we see this especially in David's rule, to bring the Urim and the Thummim, okay? Because Joshua is not going to be the high general of Israel. God is, 
okay? Joshua's just hearing his message and responding to it, and we see that later in David's life. So most likely that's what it's talking about here. He brings these two things because it's God who will fight for Israel. Verse seven, they warred against Midian as the Lord commanded Moses and killed every male. They killed the kings of Midian with the rest of their slain, uh, Evi, Rechem, Zer, Hur, and Reba, the five kings of Midian, and they also killed Balaam, the son of Baor, with the sword. And I'll just remind you again, the first thing Balaam says in his prophecy of Israel is, oh, if only my fate would be like Israel's. But his fate is like Midian's. Okay. And so, verse 9, the people of Israel took captive the women of Midian and their little ones, and they took the plunder, all their cattle, their flocks, and all their goods, all their cities and the places where they lived, and all their encampments they burned with fire, and took all the spoil for plunder, both of man and beast. Then they brought the captives and the plunder and the spoil to Moses and Eleazar the priest, and to the congregation of the people of Israel at the camp on the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. Okay, so they have a routing victory, and they bring home the spoil. Verse 13, Moses and Eleazar the priest and all the chiefs of the congregation went to meet them outside the camp, and Moses was angry with the officers of the army, the commanders of thousands, and the commanders of hundreds who had come from service in the war. Moses said to them, have you let all the women live? Behold, these on Balaam's advice caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor, and so the plague came among the congregation of Israel. Now therefore, kill every male among the little ones and kill every woman who has known a man by lying with him. Now, the first thing to understand here is if you're reading this and you're familiar with the book of Deuteronomy, this is actually a surprise. Israel was to spare the women. But here, Moses is mad that they did so, okay? The reason is because these women were actively involved in the incident at Baal Peor, right? They were adulterously involved in the incident at Baal Peor. And so he goes, how does this make any sense? These women already led you into idolatrous worship, and you're just going to take them as your own, as your sons and your sons' wives, right, and servants in your household? And he says, no, the judgment falls on them as well. Um, so verse uh, 19, encamp outside the camp seven days. Whoever of you has killed any person and whoever has touched any slain, purify yourselves and your captives on the third day and on the seventh day you shall purify every garment, every article of skin, all the work of goat's hair and every article of wood. If you were to flip back a few chapters, you would see that effectively they have to go through the process of being unclean because they've been exposed to corpses, Okay. Notice those rules still apply here. God's holiness, God being a God of life, being so present in Israel, they don't get off free of these things just because they were doing God's work. And so all of the soldiers have to stay outside the camp for seven days and go through the process of cleansing as laid out a few chapters earlier. Verse 21, Then Eleazar the priest said to the men in the army who'd gone to battle, This is the statute of the law that the Lord has commanded Moses. Only the gold, the silver, the bronze, the iron, the tin, and the lead, everything that can stand fire shall pass through the fire, and it shall be clean. Okay, so all the spoil of war has to go through a process of cleansing too. Anything that can stand fire is cleansed through fire. Verse uh, 23 continues, Nevertheless, it shall also be purified with water for impurity. Whatever cannot stand the fire, you'll pass through the water. You must wash your clothes on the seventh day and you shall be clean, and afterwards you may come into the camp. 
Verse 25, the Lord said to Moses, take count of the plunder that was taken, both of man and beast. You and Eleazar the priest are the heads of the father's house of the congregation and divide the plunder into two parts between the warriors who went out to battle and all the congregation. Notice this, this is different from all the records we have of the ancient Near East armies. You fight the fight, you get the booty. That's consistent in all the records we have of all the nations in the area, but Israel makes a distinction and says it will be divvied out between the soldiers who were on the front line, the troops, and the rest of the nation of Israel. Okay. You see the same thing as David carries it out in his campaigns later uh, in the book of Samuel. Okay. And then on top of that, not only are they to divide it between the soldiers and the congregation, but there's also a portion that goes to God. Verse 28, levy for the Lord a tribute from the men of war who went out to battle, one out of 500 of the people, and of the oxen and of the donkeys and on the flock, take it from their half and give it to Eleazar the priest as a contribution to the Lord. And from the people of Israel's half, you shall take one drawn out of every 50 of the people of the oxen, the donkeys, and the flocks, and all the cattle, and give them to the Levites. Okay? So one thousandth of the plunder of the soldiers goes to the family of the high priest, and one fiftieth of the plunder left over to the congregation of Israel goes to support the Levites. Verse 31, Moses and Eleazar and the priests did as the Lord commanded Moses. Now the plunder remaining of the spoil that the army took was 6,750,000 sheep, 72,000 cattle, 61,000 donkeys, and 32,000 persons in all, women who had not known a man by lying with him. And the half of the portion of those who had gone out in the armies numbered three. 337,500 sheep. The Lord's tribute of sheep was 675. The cattle was 36,000, of which the Lord's tribute was 72. The donkeys were 30,500. The Lord's tribute was 61. The persons were 16,000, of which the Lord's tribute was 32 persons. And Moses gave the tribute, which was the contribution for the Lord to Eliezer the priest, as the Lord had commanded Moses. Now, the only comment I want to make on this, you want to run the math, fine. It checks out. Okay. The only comment I want to make is we are talking about a surprising amount of spoil, okay. especially being the spoil of an army of just 12,000 people. Okay. It is a tremendously large people implied in Midian that God gives the victory. In fact, there's something more significant here. There's a missing detail here. We know that they routed, but... How many men did Israel lose? Notice what it says in verse 48. Then the officers who were over the thousands of the army, the commanders of thousands, the commanders of hundreds, came near to Moses and said to Moses, your servants have counted the men of war who are under our command, and there's not a man missing from us. Here in their first great battle, where we can assume, I think absolutely rightly, that they're outnumbered, okay, just based on the spoil alone, and every Israelite comes home to their family. Not one is missing, okay? This is what God has promised, that he will fight the battles for Israel, and this sets a precedent. It gives them a foundation for faith for what's to come. But notice what happens next, verse 50. We've brought the Lord's offering, what each man found, articles of gold, armlets, bracelets, signet rings, earrings, and beads to make atonement for ourselves before the Lord. What is this about? Specifically here, it's not the fact that they were soldiers and they need atonement. It's the fact that they counted the soldiers, and that needs atonement. If you go back and read, you'll uh, remember that anytime Israel takes a census, 
that they have to give up a shekel for each person they count to make atonement for that act. Because there's a big difference between God's people Israel and our people Israel. Okay? No general gets to say, this is my army, these are my men. Just consider what happens to David when he goes, I wonder how big my army is, and he counts it for the wrong reasons. Right? A significant act of judgment and a plague breaks out. And so there was this aspect of atonement. What's significant here, though, is Israel is so grateful for what God has done, he doesn't take up an offering of shekels, but significantly beyond that, okay? They reach into these spoils, they recognize that God has given them the victory, and so they over and abundantly what was commanded give back to God, okay? And so, Verse 51, Moses and Eleazar the priest received from them the gold, all the crafted articles, and all the gold of the contribution they presented to the Lord from the commanders of the thousands, the commanders of hundreds, was 16,750 shekels. Okay? Instead of the 12,000 shekels we would expect from a census. The men in the army had each taken plunder for himself, verse 54, and Moses and Eleazar the priest received the gold from the commanders of the thousands and hundreds and brought into the tent of meeting as a memorial for the people of Israel before the Lord. Okay. So, God's first battle with Israel is against the Midianites, and through God's faithfulness, he brings out a miraculous victory. But notice what happens in chapter 32. Verse 1, now the people of Reuben and the people of Gad had a very great number of livestock, and they saw the land of Jazer and the land of Gilead, and behold, the place was a place for livestock. What is the land of Gilead and Jazer? That's the land they just routed the enemies out of. That's the land of Midian, okay? It is not in the territory that God promised Israel that we call the promised land or the land of Canaan. It's right next to it. It's, it's neighboring it, but it's not in it. And they look at that and they go, man, we have a lot of animals and this is really good land. Okay. And so, verse 2, the people of Gad and the people of Reuben came and said to Moses, Eleazar the priest, and to the chiefs of the congregation, Adaroth, Dabon, Jazer, Nimrah, Heshbon, Elias, Sabem, Nebo, and Baon, the land that the Lord struck down before our congregation of Israel is a land for livestock, and your servants have livestock. And they said, if we found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants as a possession. Don't take us across the Jordan. So what do they say here? They go... We think we're going to get off the bus now. We have everything we want. It's right here. It's good for the taking. There's no more battles to fight. We're just going to settle here. Now, if you want to get the significance of this, remember that just a generation earlier, all of these men who comes forward's fathers stood and said, we don't want to cross the river. So look at how Moses responds, verse 6. But Moses said to the people of Gad and the people of Reuben, Shall your brothers go to war while you sit here? Why will you discourage the heart of the people of Israel from going over into the land that the Lord has given them? There's a lot we could meditate on here. We don't have time for it. But just notice, the first thing he says is, how selfish. And the second thing he says is, have you considered the precedent, the discouragement that you'll give to the people of Israel? He continues on and he says in verse 8, your fathers did this. When I sent them from Kadesh Barnea to see the land, for when they went up to the valley of Eskel and saw the land, they discouraged the heart of the people of Israel from going into the land the Lord has given them. The third thing he says is, we've been here before. Don't you know how this story goes? Verse 
10. And the Lord's anger was kindled on that day, and he swore, saying, Surely none of the men who come up out of Egypt from 20 years old and upward shall see the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, because they've not wholly followed me. None except Caleb, son of Jephna, the Kenizzite, and Joshua, the son of Nun, for they've wholly followed the Lord. And the Lord's anger was kindled against Israel, and he made them wander in the wilderness 40 years until... All the generation that had done evil in the sight of the Lord was gone. And behold, you've risen in your father's place, a brood of sinful men to increase still more the fierce anger of the Lord against Israel. For if you turn away from following him, he will again abandon them in the wilderness and will destroy all this people. Okay, and so this is a serious thing that's going on. And so they take this rebuke and they respond to it, and to their credit, they get the message. Unlike their fathers, they heed the warning of their leaders, they heed the advice, and they respond to it positively, instead of digging in their heels and going, let's just appoint a new president, because clearly Moses isn't on our side, right? And so, verse 16, they came near and said to him, We'll build sheepfolds here for our livestock and our cities and our little ones, but we will take up arms, ready to go before the people of Israel until we've brought them to their place. Side note, when they say go before the people of Israel, consistently they're listed in the front lines of battle. They keep this not just in the non-literal sense, but in the literal sense. We're willing to be right up there with everyone else fighting the wars that God has called us to fight. Um, and our little ones shall live in the fortified cities because of the inhabitants of the land. We'll not return to our homes until each of the people of Israel has gained his inheritance, for we'll not inherit with them on the other side of Jordan and beyond, because our inheritance has come to us on the side of Jordan to the east. And so they say, we're willing to do all of this, but we'd still like to settle here. Now, there is one little word there that puts kind of a burr in my heart. And that's when they say, this is our inheritance. There's no chance. God has been very clear. He gave them an inheritance, and now they're trying to give this land that they've chosen the same title. This is what God has given us. And so this action is commendable, but there's also a danger in it. There's a significant problem. Nonetheless, at least in terms of what they owe the rest of the nation of Israel and owe in their allegiance to, God, uh, to the God of Israel... Moses responds in this way, verse 20. So Moses said to them, if you will do this, if you will take up arms to go before the Lord for war, and every armed man of you will pass over Jordan before the Lord until he's driven out his enemies before him, and the land is subdued before the Lord, and after that you shall return and be free of obligation to the Lord and to Israel, and this land shall be your possession before the Lord. But if you do not do so, behold, you've sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. Why does he have to add that? Because he's not going to be around to see it. Okay? He says, basically, don't think just because I'm dead and gone, you're going to get away with it. He continues, verse 24, Build cities for your little ones and folds for your sheep and do what you've promised. And the people of Gad and the people of Reuben said to Moses, Your servants will do as the Lord commands. Our little ones, our wives, our livestock, and all our cattle shall remain in the cities of Gilead, but your servants will pass over every man who's armed for war before the Lord to battle as my Lord orders. So Moses gave command concerning them to Eleazar the priest and to Joshua the son of Nun and to the heads of the fathers' houses of the tribes of people of Israel. Why? Because they'll be there to see it, right? Because they're the ones who are going to be around. 
So he tells them what's up, verse 29. Moses said to them, If the people of Gad and the people of Reuben, every man who's armed to battle before the Lord, will pass with you over the Jordan to the land, and it shall be subdued before you, then you'll give them the land of Gilead for possession. However, if they will not pass over with you armed, they shall have possession among you in the land of Canaan. And the people of Gad and the people of Reuben answered, What the Lord has said to your servants, we will do. Do you get the, why we're going through this again? Because this is public. What we had was a private conversation. Now it's made public. They're taking uh, a promise before the people. Verse 32, we will pass over armed before the Lord in the land of Canaan and the possession of our inheritance shall remain with us beyond the Jordan. And Moses gave to them, to the people of Gad and the people of Reuben and the half tribe of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, the kingdom of Sihon, the king of the Amorites and the kingdom of Og of Bashan and the land and its cities with their territories, the city throughout the country. And the people of Gad built, so it reaches forward now and connects the dots and says all of these cities are what we're talking about. Debon, Ardaroth, Eor, Atrath, Shapan, Jazer, uh, Jogbeha, Beth Nehemra, Beth Haran, fortified cities and folds for sheep. And the people of Reuben built Heshbon, Eliha, Kirithim, Nebo, and Baal-Meon. Their names were changed. Why does it add that? Because those are named for pagan gods. Okay, so those names are changed. And Sibma, and they gave other names to the cities they built. And the sons of Macher, the sons of Manasseh, went to Gilead and captured it and dispossessed the Amorites who were in it. And Moses gave Gilead to Macher, the son of Manasseh, and he settled in it. And Jair, the son of Manasseh, went and captured their villages and called them Havath Jair. And Nobah went and captured Kenneth and its villages and called Nobah after its own name. So the last thing we see here is not only do they take this land, but they actually expand its borders and secure it a little bit. There's a couple of other skirmishes that happen in the future, and they settle in this land. And so you look at this and you go, so what's the problem? I mean, they've got Moses' permission. It all seems fine. The thing is, the story doesn't end here. Okay? So the first place this goes sideways is when they do finally settle in the land, all of these tribes look at this river Jordan between them and Israel over there, and they go, you know what? What if Israel forgets that we're Israel too? And so they set up this memorial altar just to basically say, we are one of you. And Israel sees a new altar and they freak out and they go, wait a minute. When God has made clear that we're only to offer sacrifice to the tabernacle, the first thing you do when you settle your new digs is set up a pagan altar. And there's this huge thing and they're ready to go to war to put to death these tribes so that God doesn't bring judgment on Israel. And they go, no, 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 we're not going to use it. It's just for looks. So that you won't be able to say, you're not really Jewish. If you were Jewish, you'd be in the promised land. And the story doesn't end there either. There's that clarification. They're like, oh, okay, that's fine. But ultimately, Gad and Reuben and the half-tribe of Manasseh are the first ones to go into idolatry and the first ones to go away into Assyria. They're the first one conquered, conquered in judgment. They want just before the finish line of what God has for them. And they go, that's fine. They sit down and they go, this is sufficient. Unlike Abraham, who looks at the promised land and looks at Lot and says, choose for yourself, and lets Lot choose, and Lot does so, and then God says, Abraham, look around you. I'm going to give you everything. Here the tribes choose for themselves. They put themselves at risk. They settle for less than God has for them. And I think there's a lesson there for us as well. Because the truth is, we don't fight wars like Israel does. But the Bible makes really clear that the Christian life is nonetheless a life of warfare. 
I've always loved how Warren Wearsby put it. He said, if we're trying to describe the Christian life, it's less like a playground and more like a battleground. And there's a danger of us, just like these two and a half tribes, going, this is enough. God has given me enough good things. I'm going to settle here. I'm not going to press on. I'm not going to push forward. I'm going to retire. And here's the thing about Old Testament narrative. It expects you to keep reading, one, and expects you to use your common sense. So I know there's no critique of Reuben and Gad and Manasseh here, but the critique is in the consequence. It's really easy to read this and go, hey man, you shouldn't dog on them. God doesn't. God doesn't give any specific critique of Samson either, and he shouldn't be your role model. The point is, in the Hebrew mind, the way life plays out tells you how life should be lived good examples and in bad. And these tribes, they come up short. They come up as a bad example. They don't do the worst thing, which is rebellion. But there is a sense where sometimes if we continue to ask, God gives us what we ask for. And we should be wary of that. This is my challenge to you. Settle for nothing less than what God has for you. Let's pray. God, we again thank you for this book. And although it is distant and different than our day-to-day lives, it is clearly relevant because you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And because of what Paul says about the book of Numbers when he says that these things were written down for our example. So I pray, Lord, that you would continue to teach us through this book, through the rest of the books that make up the Old Testament, through your word as a whole, and that we would know you deeply and follow you closely till our very last breath. We ask this in your name and by your power. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen, have a good night.